Welcome to the Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life podcast, the show that empowers you to redefine the life you want and live your best life. Now, I'm your host, Francine Belly, and I show purpose-driven entrepreneurs, CEOs, and professionals a powerful pathway to become recognized thought leaders in their field, increase their visibility, trust, and profitability. So join me and my guests every Tuesday for inspirational stories and practical strategies to get more meaning in your work and in your life, make the money you deserve and lead a movement to change the world. Today, I am so, so thrilled to have in this episode, Christine Bell. And uh, Christine is a global diversity equity and inclusion executive on a mission actually to creating access to opportunity for the systemically excluded, underserved, underestimate. I love that. Just that. <laughs> so uh, hi, Christine. Welcome to the Meaningful Wealth, Meaningful Life podcast. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. And I know that was a lot of um, descriptors to add in, <laughs> but I wanted to make sure I covered the basis of who I'm trying to serve. So thank you for saying all of those. That is important. I've noticed that all of them have their own importance. That's why I also just spell them out. <laughs> so tell us, for those who don't know you, tell us in your own words who you are and what you do. Yeah, I think the one word to start off this brief description of who I am and what I do is I am a disruptor. And by disruptor, I mean that I am someone who comes into a space that is following status quo, that does not benefit the identities of those who are historically excluded or who are underrepresented, underestimated, and underserved to create and deploy systemic solutions that serve those populations to create equity and equality in this place that we call the world. So, but outside of that, I am a global diversity, equity, and inclusion practitioner. I am also an HR uh, people leader by trade as well. And I wear multiple hats. Um, one of them is I'm an associate director for a Fortune 500 company in the DEI space, but I'm also uh, a two-time co-founder, one for CultureSite, which is the only platform that's been created for employees to really navigate discrimination, retaliation, or harassment in the workplace. And then the other is Review Tailor, which is a performance management software platform that creates equitable performance reviews in seconds. And so what you should know about me, at least from that brief introduction, is that there is equity and inclusion and uh, diversity and employee advocacy embedded into the fabrics of everything that I do. And so I am very privileged and what I consider to be very blessed to be a person that gets to be be and do the same work in my personal life as I do in my professional life. And it's all one big pot together. Wow, that is awesome. And uh, do you find some time to sleep after doing all of those you things? Know, at, some point, <laughs> at some point, sleep is in there, but I, I, do, uh, I do try to prioritize self-care as well. Yes. And I think that, you know, to do the work that I'm doing would be impossible yeah. without self-care because you have to be able to pour from a place of overflow in this type of work. Yeah, it's important to say that, that, you know, although you have all those multiple help, you're a disruptor, you have multi-entrepreneur on two platforms and uh, you have your corporate job, you have everything else going on, but at the same time, you are taking care also um, to yourself because this is one of the topics that we've all been hearing recently about burnout and you know trying to yes do everything at the same time um so yeah so you're going to share a bit of your tips later how you do everything for some people who want to do quite a lot of things how you may be managing your time some tips perhaps uh, you're going to tell us in uh, in a moment um so thank you for these things so and now you know i know that you share quite a lot but is there one thing that most people don't know about you? I think maybe the thing that most people don't know about me is that I am an ambivert. And I wanted to call that piece out because, you know, sometimes I have to embed myself in different communities where I'm going out to 
proactively meet people to understand what their needs are, to find a way to connect them with different resources. But I also get my strength from, you know, taking the time to reflect and to take care of myself. And so if someone is hearing for the first time that I'm doing all of these things, their brain is like, okay, when does this girl sleep? When does she eat? All of those things. But because I practice a high level of self-care, it enables me to be able to go out and to do the things and to be able to connect with people. Mm -hmm. And so I think that most people are surprised by that. They would think that I'm an extrovert. I am actually an Amber Bird, so I'm right there in the middle. middle. Um, that's super important to me that people know that about me too. Yeah, that <laughs> is interesting. Exactly. So you can, you you are bilingual. Actually, you can both. <laughs> you can speak both both, both language. <laughs> you can speak the introvert language. You can speak the extrovert language. When you know you can adapt to extrovert, that's a very good place to be. Actually, and actually, I think that I met a lot of success successful people who are kind of right ambivert actually as you say actually they are able to switch you know they are like big public speaker and some people just think that they're extrovert but actually really deep down they may be much more towards introvert side so but they know how to play both game so that's uh, a very good uh, you know uh, <laughs> skills actually or very good uh, talent or nature to have <laughs> So tell us, what is your background before you came to HR and uh, all these equity, uh, inclusion uh, um, realm? What, where did you come from? Did you Have you always been, um, you know, gravitating towards HR, equity and uh, everything else like this? This is hilarious. So um, I'll give you a little bit of background info of when I was a kid and then how, what, what I got to in college. So I knew that in the sixth grade that I wanted to be a doctor mm. and an attorney where we used to have this schedule called A and B days in school. And so on A days, I would wear a blazer to class in the sixth grade and I would take on my classmates as clients and they would pay me 25 cents to go and argue on behalf of half of them to a teacher about something. And then on B days, I would be a doctor. And so if you weren't feeling well, you could come to me and give me 25 cents. And I would tell you to go to the nurse's office because I wasn't really a doctor. And I think it's so funny where I did not end up becoming a medical doctor. I am not an attorney as of today. <laughs> um, and I decided to, uh, when I got to college, I was actually a pre-med biochem major. And within three weeks of school, without even having a science class, I said, I don't think I actually want to go to medical school. And so I opted to go to business school instead. And so my bachelor's degree is in business finance. And the second semester of my senior year of college, right before graduation, I decided that I did not want to work in corporate finance. I like the idea of being able to um, advise people on how to generate wealth for themselves and their families. Um, but I did not want to have a career in it. And so I wasn't exactly sure what I was going to do after undergrad, but I knew that my degree in business was pretty versatile. And so that was a safe uh, a safe way for me to be able to maneuver. I actually got my start in um, HR when I was working at the university in the Center for Career Development. And I was helping uh, students with their resumes. I was running a closed closet if they needed to interview for an internship, organizing the career fairs. And I was recruited by one of the employers on campus to join their corporate team. And so I left education and went into um, the corporate space uh, at a healthcare company and uh, started off doing some things around employee relations, did some HR administrative operational tasks, and then I had an opportunity to jump into talent acquisition. And this is where I discovered my life's purpose for this work. I was making an offer to a candidate, one of my very first offers, and I remember this person crying on the phone with me because this was an opportunity that was changing their, their life and the life for their children. Um, it provided more income, more stability, a better environment. And I cried on the phone with that person because I was able to be this conduit, this connector 
uh, of getting someone to what they needed to be able to thrive in their space. And so literally I just, from that moment forward, I knew that whatever capacity of the work I was doing, it was to be a connector of people, a connector of resources and a connector of opportunity. And Mm -hmm. so no matter the roles I've been in, that is the basis. How am I connecting people who need to be served and supported to the things that can be life-changing for them? Mm -hmm. And so got my introduction into HR there. And then I was introduced really into um, diversity, equity, inclusion in that same uh, in that same facet, where I noticed that internally we had populations of people uh, and people of color specifically that were being overlooked for different roles because managers already had in mind who they wanted yeah. and it looked like what they call a good old boy system. And so I knew early on that everyone did not have the same experience. And for me, that was very important to make sure that whatever systems and solutions are being deployed, that at the systemic level, that they are not creating disparities for other communities and especially communities of color. And so that is my introduction. Mm-hmm. And into this work, I've been in the HR space now for about 10 years. The last five years, I will say, have been in a DEI dedicated focused role with a title. And it has been life-changing. I've learned so much and know that I have a lot more to learn in this space. Mm, Wow. Yeah, that is a very, very uh, powerful, actually, start, actually, (laughs) trying to get from being medical student or, you know, in medical or being attorney to find yourself in HR in a way. So that's uh, that's really powerful. And actually having this opportunity to giving to having that first experience, which actually determined the rest of your career now where, you know, you, you you really understood the power it's not really the power, the privilege of giving somebody a chance in life to just get the job they deserve, actually. That is really, really amazing because I know that even here in the UK and in Europe, you know, there are still quite a lot of people who are on, you know, undervalued for or who don't get the access that they need to, um, you know, because, yeah, they just don't get that chance. Um, so having some people like you actually offer those chances really like a godsend uh, to, you know, everybody. So and um, have you been uh, since then very much focusing on now when you really became very clear that you wanted to really keep your focus on creating this access to opportunity. So tell me that moment, what does that look like? Was it a aha moment when one day you just stop and say, well, this is my path. This is what I'm more unborn to do. Or it just happened a little bit gradually. Tell me that story. I want to say that it was gradually, um, but there have been some very significant moments in my career and things that have happened to me personally as well that I think where they were indicators that I should have honed in earlier on, um, but finally that light bulb clicked. And one of the things that comes to mind specifically for me is when um, a couple years ago now, I uh, was working with a leader, I was reporting into a VP, and it was time for performance reviews. And I don't know about anyone else, but I despise performance reviews. I don't like having to write them when you have employees. <laughs> I thought you it was know. only me. <laughs> no, you don't want to write the performance review. It's a lot, right? Because you have to go through different files that have been misplaced everywhere to try to pull it together and write this, this summary of what you think sounds good. Mm-hmm. And you want to write it well enough to where the employee doesn't be, isn't disgruntled. You want to write yours well enough to where if you want to get a promotion, you can advocate for that. So um, I, I think I was going through the review process for this company and my manager at the time, the vi- vice president, she put into my performance review that I was defensive and aggressive. Mm-hmm. And that verbiage came out of an interaction where I had to correct her on the language that she was using and how harmful it was to people of marginalized communities, especially uh, for black women in the workplace. She was a white female and so it was not received very well and it was added to my performance review. The issue of that is not just it was added into my performance review, but your performance reviews are actually linked to total rewards programs at companies, meaning how much does your pay increase over time? Mm-hmm. Will you be able to get a promotion in the future? How do, how will other hiring managers in the company view you? And so it had a long lasting systemic effect in that process. And I challenged it 
We went through a couple of processes external of the organization. And while it did not end in my favor, um, I realized that no one else should have to go through an experience like that. And I think at that particular moment, that is when I began to take the role of being a mentor very seriously um, to other people, but especially other Black women who were my mentees. And I had an opportunity um, actually quite recently when I had two mentees at an organization that were issued a performance improvement plan. And I'm going somewhere with this, I promise. Mm-hmm. And I'm going somewhere with this. Yeah. Issued performance improvement plans or what people call PIPs. And when I looked at their PIPs, there was no way that a member of the HR team had signed off on those. It couldn't have been because as someone who has worked in employee relations before, I know exactly what to look for. Mm. And there were just a lot of flags and the details that was very subjective. It was based on personality. And I think the the caveat here to consider is that the hiring manager was a white woman mm-hmm. and my two mentees were women of color. Mm-hmm. And they were the only two that were placed on PIPs out of their entire team. And so I got with my mentees. I helped them to challenge those PIPs line by line. And, you know, they were, ended up being terminated as part of a reduction in force for the company. That was an easy way out. But I said at that very moment that going forward, people, I would not be the person that stands by and allows people not to know how to advocate for themselves. Um, And so I decided to build a solution that aims and is about empowering employees to advocate for themselves. And many times we just don't know what, what we don't know until someone tells us. And so I'm allowing myself to be the person that tells them in partnership with other employment attorneys across the U.S. So anyhow, that is how I I think I've gotten to the point of knowing that employee advocacy is the drive behind everything that I do, behind every product um, that is built, is, is how do we create an equitable experience and a space for accountability on both sides. Yeah, that is really, really powerful uh, because, um, and then I can see also um, the nuance. And I I think that I had a discussion also with another American last time who actually, it it is uh, different in Europe, employee advocacy is much more a little bit equivalent to employee ambassador, like employees that actually are becoming brand ambassador for the uh, companies. But I can see that in US employee advocacy, perhaps some places in Europe as well, but you know, so far haven't been, you know, looking into that bit is how you can defend yourself, you know, how you can actually uh as you say, you know, know what to look for in anywhere, even proactively, and, you know, advocating for yourself as, as well. So which is very interesting, actually, sometimes the differences that are in one word, which is employee advocacy, but it means something else in uh, in the in US or in other places, another another one, uh, another thing in, in Europe. But it's very, very important. And I think that even, even when employees becoming ambassador, um, they obviously need to understand also how to advocate for themselves, you know, and this is not something that has been ever taught anywhere, not in school, I don't think so, and definitely not in organization. Um, so what do, you, do people need to go, actually, if I just stay a little bit with your definition of employee advocacy, because I just wanted to explore that bit. How do you get to empower so many people at so much, so many scale, at a bigger scale of how to advocate for themselves. How, how on earth do they do that? Yeah, I think what's being explored right now um, for CultureSight, and again, a CultureSight is this platform that gives people in the U.S. the step-by-step guidelines on information that they should be tracking about their workplace experiences, Um, but in addition to them having this tool to be able to track their experiences and collect evidence, it's also providing uh, blogs about, you know, best practices. Uh, Also, I'm very vocal on LinkedIn. I'll try to share best practices there with people. Um, And I, back in my recruiter days, Francine, I'll say this, I am embarrassingly in over a hundred groups on uh, LinkedIn and in Facebook when I was a recruiter. And I'm still pretty active in those groups. Mm -hmm. And 
what I'll do is, you know, sadly, there's not a day that goes by where I'm in these groups and at least one person is talking about how they've experienced discrimination or palliation or harassment, or they're having performance challenges with their manager or their peers. And I think for me, being able to connect directly with those people, share the tool out in real time, have them to share it with people that they know needed um, has been uh, really important in being able to get the tool and the information into to the hands of people. Um, I'm also partnered with several different employment attorneys who I consider to be legal advisors um, for Culture Site. And we're now getting into the space of doing webinars to be able to invite people out to get this information so that they can start to leverage and use it. Um, you know, how do we scale this on a on a larger platform? We have the product. I think tech will be the accelerator to get it yeah. into the hands of people, but it's, it's getting the exposure, it's continuing to share the story, to share the message, to loop people in, mm-hmm. to have those one-off conversations with people who are having a hard time and to share the tool for them as a resource. Wow. I hope that that will be applicable in Europe too. That is something that I'm going to have a look at, you know, if uh, I'm sure that that uh, there's no reason why it shouldn't be this, the case, you know, giving this power to people. I love that thing. <laughs> the power to people to advocate for themselves, really, yeah. and challenging and looking at what actually, because those performance reviews sometimes, yeah, there's nothing you can do. Myself, I have been on the receiving end of many of those as well, you know. I was in corporate before, you know, started uh, my own uh, company and working for big, big multinationals. And you can have some managers just writing stuff. You don't agree. I remember that some of them, it was a discussion during the performance review. They will say something. I say, no, I don't agree with that. Even even my, 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 my MD sometimes, I don't agree with what he was saying. So, yeah, so it's very, very important. I didn't even know that such resources existed. You just opened my eyes to that now. So oh, yeah. I'll definitely have a look. <laughs> into yeah, and what's, what's unique about Culture Site, though, is that it could go to different countries, but it would need to be tailored yes, to the employment guidelines of that, of that company. So right now, Culture Site is based on the federal EEOC guidelines in the U.S., Mm-hmm. Um, we would need to really understand, you know, for the countries and nuances within yeah. Europe. I think people get this yeah. misconception that Europe is just England. And I'm like, no, you no, have of like. Of course not. You have France, yeah. which is a big, big one in terms of employment, you know, yeah. employment law. You don't want to mess up with exactly. France. <laughs> yeah. So I think if there's a, a market or if there is an appetite for uh, having a similar tool in uh, any kind of Middle Eastern or uh, European country, then I think it makes sense to explore what does employment law look like there and what are the challenges that employees face the most and then being able to tailor a tool that supports them um, to get through that process to be able to advocate for themselves. Wow, I think that you definitely need to find some partners to look into this thing in all those different countries. Wow. I don't know. Actually, I've never heard about this. Uh, perhaps some exist, but yeah, let's, um, you know, have a look into it. Uh, so yes, uh, you know, staying in the DNI, uh, on DNI topic before we get into what actually is the focus of, uh, you know, the podcast um, uh, for this season is that I've seen one of your LinkedIn posts where you say that too many organizations are implementing diversity hiring goals without doing the necessary internal work. And I was saying, okay, what is that necessary work they need to do, actually? Did they know? <laughs> you know, I think that um, a lot of companies have taken the initiative to hire um, <clears throat> to hire people on their teams to lead diversity, equity, and inclusion. One thing that I have also noticed organizations are doing is that they are hiring people who have not done equity-based work mm-hmm. who are not familiar with people systems or HR systems who do not understand how supplier and vendor diversity works mm-hmm. as well or product diversity and accessibility. And so I think part of that necessary internal work that has to be done before bringing in more groups of historically excluded people into a space it starts with the experience that people already have. So for example, 
if we are, if we have a goal to have 50, 50% gender representation, mm-hmm. we have to ask ourselves and the companies that we support, do we have the systems and the benefits and the structure in place for them to be successful? That means have we done our due diligence in creating what a culture code looks like? What's acceptable, what's not acceptable behavior um, from others in the organization? Do we have the resources available to propel their development and their learning and their continued education? Do we have a way to capture feedback? When we think about internal promotions, do we have clear criteria on what success looks like and what does it not look like and how it should be evaluated for a consistent and fair review? You know, those are the things that come to mind um, to me that a lot of companies tend to skip Mm-hmm. And they'll put the cart before the horse, for lack of better words, and they'll go out and hire a bunch of people, but it becomes this revolving door where they only stay for one to two years, maybe because of the experience that they're having at the organization. They're experiencing acts of exclusion mm-hmm. that they don't want to try to survive in. Right. And so that's what I'm saying about the necessary work. It's the culture work. Mm-hmm. Um, and your culture is not just the words that you throw around to people to make them feel included. It's also about the systems that you have in your organization and even the unspoken uh, code of conduct that is there. Yeah. I love that, that, you know, they have to think of all of those things. However, what if you know, we know how cultural change really takes time to change, you know, <laughs> culture. Do they have to get all these things in order before hiring, you know, diverse uh, people? How can they do that in maybe, maybe in an agile way? I'm sure that, you know, if you tell them that, hey, you need to look at your system, you need to look at your process, you need to look at your vendors. Uh, this never happened, especially for those big organizations that I know. It will not happen today. It will take five years. So that means that during those five years, they shouldn't try to bring bring some people in or if they bring them in, how can they manage that actually? Yeah. So it definitely needs to be an agile process and a way of thinking. Mm. I think it usually starts with an internal audit and assessment Mm. of the current state of the organization. So you go through every facet, you get a good read of what that looks like Um, for an experienced practitioner that takes them somewhere from between three to six months to be able to collect and gather and analyze that information to then be able to formulate a strategy on doing that. Um, And so you can do it. It it needs to be in a phased approach to give you just a very direct answer to the question. Um, You can bring people in, but you need to be able to clearly identify and address what are the main things that need to be addressed, what needs to be prioritized that you can get done in the first three to six months to solve for that, to solve for that challenge. And then what are the immediate resources that you can use to put in place until you have the long-term solutions um, ready to go and to deploy. So you have the short-term solutions and then you have the long-term. It has to work together in tandem. Um, What usually happens is that companies will say, I'm ready to bring on these groups of people, but they're not ready to make the investment in the short-term resources to support that population while they're on the longer journey. Mm -hmm. They want the the immediate return on investment, not realizing that sometimes to your point, to fix a system, it may take you mm-hmm. two years to do that. But what do you have in the interim? And what are you willing to give uh, in the interim while this is being developed for a long-term sustainable yeah. solution? Yeah. yeah, it's really having that audit, as you say, and having the awareness of where we are and where we are going. And then how, you know, what's that, the milestone, how they look like. And okay, you know, we know that we have to fix this, this and that, but even if we bring this population in now, we know that, okay, it may not be perfect, but we are working on that. And we have a way of measuring our progress actually, because a lot of people, you know, after George Floyd's murder, I was part also of uh, a training uh, cohort that actually did train people on race fluency here in the UK and, uh, you know, for big (laughs) Fortune 500 companies. But some of them have these kind of targets. But, yeah, you are not sure what actually they are doing in terms of the system that they are putting in place to really track these uh, big 
you know, goal that they say they want to hit uh, by uh, whatever time, actually. So, and, um, you know, which actually just bring me to this uh, FT uh, article that I read on LinkedIn, actually, about the exit of a lot of diversity ex executives. I don't know if you have seen that happening. And yeah. if, 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 you know, those diversity executives are leaving, so who is going to do the job? <laughs> or were, were they the wrong people? You know, I don't know what's going on. Why mm -hmm. there are a lot of executive exec exiting uh, in diversity and inclusion uh, realm, actually. Any clue of what's going yeah. on? Yeah, and I think this is also not something I would say that is unique to chief diversity officers. Mm -hmm. This is also uh, true to anyone or any position within the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. And the main reason that this particular role or a position in this space of work has higher turnover is due to lack of support. Mm. And lack of support can mean lack of uh, vocal support, lack of financial support to drive certain initiatives, and also lack of accountability. Mm. One of the things that I have learned in doing this work is that even if you have the resources and even if you have the vocal support, if you lack the accountability yeah. from leadership and the actual power to hold people accountable, nothing will change. Yeah. And it can be very exhausting. I think that most people will give themselves a year, a year and a half to really assess a current situation to see, can they actually make progress in this space or are they fighting a losing battle? And once you've seen that you're fighting a losing battle, because it is a choice, right? Whether you, if you, either you want to do it or you don't, mm. then you'll start to see people go elsewhere. And it becomes this cycle. This is also, you know, in tandem with the fact that during the interview process, some companies will sell you hopes and dreams, right? They'll tell yeah. you one thing in the interview process. And then in comes, and in comes the horse, right? In disguise, uh, the, the Trojan horse where you've, you assumed that it was going to be this thing. And now that we've got you and you're in here, here's the truth. And here's how we're really operating. Go make it look good externally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think that the, the lack of accountability thing is uh, is a huge, because as you say, if you have the resource, you can be vocal, but you know nobody feel like you know whatever they are doing, all the microaggressions and everything else that they are doing, nobody is saying anything. So or you know it's not even reflected in any kind of performance review of them even because that should be also tracked <laughs> in the performance review and all those things. But if nothing of such is happening, so people are still doing what they used to do actually, and uh, people who just um, got in are going to be so frustrated they're going to leave again. So and then it's like you haven't done anything. So um, yes. So um, so what would you say? You know, now if we get into really the proper employee advocacy, but in in terms of employee ambassador, the way me I'm looking at or defining for this season, what I'm calling employee advocacy is how actually people, employees are in the organization very well looked after. They have a great culture. They have everything that they love in the company and they are willing to become the brand ambassador of their companies. So what's in for such thing to happen, what would you say will be the prerequisite of a company for anybody or employees uh, in your you know, diverse experience that you have? What would you see, what have you seen that will make people that work are working in their company to become the brand ambassador of their company? You know, I think that even though employees can join an organization that doesn't have it all together because no company just has it all yeah. together. I think the one deciding factor that can really speak more volumes and that employees will be willing to talk about is if they have a good manager. Mm -hmm. And a good manager can be defined in, in multiple ways, depending on the person that's speaking and depending on what your personal preference is as an employee. But if you are able to have a leader that empowers you, that supports you, that develops you in a way that is unique for you, 
then it does not matter to a large extent of what else is happening in the organization because where you spend most of your time at will be with your team and with your manager. And if you have a strong manager or a strong team leader, your experience will vary different, you know, very, just very differently from anyone in the organization that does not have a good manager. And so if organizations prioritize having good managers lead their teams and their people, that's a good way to get yeah. an employee to advocate for the organization. And each team has its own culture. Mm-hmm. But if you have a manager, if there's a standard that's been set for what does a good manager look like for this company, then I think that's a sure way to see some of that success. Mm-hmm. And instead of having employees talk about, well, you know, my manager has, they I experience microaggressions or biases at work. Then you have someone that's talking about my manager is so supportive. X, Y, great. What company are you at? Oh, I'm at this company, yeah. right? So you get the natural, you get the the natural advocacy from that. And so, employee advocacy can go both ways. Mm-hmm. It can harm you. It can help you, depending on the truth that's happening in your organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you are so right. Actually, that actually is not yes because. The company is so big that, you know, people don't come in the company like that, you know, in the void, they come to a manager. (laughs) If the manager actually, they even say that people don't leave company, they leave managers, actually. I think that there is a saying that, and which is so true because if your manager is not supportive or is the one actually in, in most cases that I'm hearing now is about managers, actually, the whole thing is about managers. How can we or can organization that actually really support those managers to be one self-aware that is them who actually need to foster that, you know, um culture or in within their team, they the this uh you know way of you know helping their employee to develop. Because I think that there is a lack there. I don't know how it's going on on your side, but uh, what what can company do to develop most uh, managers? I know that during COVID also like <laughs> working <laughs> online and all those things have mm-hmm. added another layer to the whole um, manager, um, you know, uh, development. Yes. So can you tell something about that actually, how to develop managers? Yeah, I think one of the things that companies can really do is to invest again in in manager capability building. And it has been in my experience that sometimes managers will get a manager position, not because they are a good people leader and they have strong qualities, but it's because they have been very strong individual contributors in that space. And that's the pitterization, right? Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Being a strong individual contributor mm-hmm. in a particular area does not necessarily mean that you'll be a great manager uh, of a team and of that person. It takes development mm-hmm. over time. It takes practice and support and learning how to build genuine and authentic relationships with people. It's learning how to flex your natural or your more dominant leadership style to support the people on your team who may need something different. It's, you know, when I think about um, development and performance in general, managers spend about 210 hours a year on performance management activities and processes. And what that means is, is that they're having one-on-one meetings with their teams. They're having team calls. They're thinking about ways to develop and promote and provide experiences and opportunities for their team and making decisions with and for their team. And I don't know, I can't, I actually can't think of an organization at this moment that does this very well. Mm. And that's, it's really important that companies have strong talent management and development programs Mm -hmm. for that reason, to be able to get training to Uh, the managers, those who lead people in the organization, just as it's equally important to make sure that you have technology and Mm -hmm. tools that facilitate that learning and facilitate that process. Mm -hmm. So those are just my initial thoughts Mm -hmm. around, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm also, I think uh, I, I, there is a, a trend at the moment. I'm not sure how widespread is the trend is 
to just remove all managers and have this flat organization where no managers. Uh, there was this guy, actually, I was listening to his podcast last time, jo Josh Burson or something, um, who was talking about that. He wrote a book called um, Irresistible or something. And uh, he was talking about today's concept and, you know, citing some companies who are just getting rid of the managers and, um, you know, and having a flat organization where things are running very well. And uh, I think there have been quite a few companies that um, here in UK also that have done that. So, and it looked like it's working well. So, because it looked like sometimes managers can be, you know, getting in the way of some people sometimes advancing faster. Not all the time, but perhaps in some ways, especially now with the technology, with AI and all those things. So, People are questioning, what's the role of a manager? <laughs> what's the role of a manager, actually? So I think that we definitely um, are in a, in a moment in time. I think that we just kind of inherited all these things from the Industrial Revolution and ha nothing has really, really changed. And now we are just faced with this new um, um, world, I think, new new world that we need to create I think that everything can be created from now. Do you have any idea of what <laughs> needs to be created to uh, to get those organizations work? Um, because it, it looks like not many people want to go to work now, like five days a week in their offices. Definitely not. Um, so, but in terms of management as well. So any thoughts that you've been pondering <laughs> how can that work <laughs> yeah i don't know if a flat organization is the answer for companies that are a bit more larger in size and that may have a global reach i think it, it depends on where the company is in their maturity journal and the nature of the work and the industry and the business mm. what i think could be helpful in helping to facilitate more meaningful interactions and getting people more engaged in work is the flexibility, right? So we've gone from, at least in the US, we've gone from this 40 hour work week, this traditional come into the office five days a week to where COVID has shown us that this could have been our reality for quite some time. And now it's it has a chance and momentum to accelerate because it's being fueled by technology that enables us to work from anywhere in the world, to be able to have the autonomy over the work that we know needs to be done that's connected back to the goals of the organization. I think that the moment that we start to embrace what this new way of work is, the better off we'll be, the better that we can attract top talent into organizations and we also need to evolve our ways of work in those organizations and to take a step back from what has been the status quo and really assess what's needed to progress forward. And that's going to be different depending on the organization. Yeah, we are actually at a at a moment where, you know, it can no longer be like a set of rules that apply to all organizations like in the past, but much more personalization, I think, and which is what technology is enabling us to do actually now. So um, can you actually, I know that you know you say that there's no perfect companies out there, but can you give us perhaps some example of some company who actually really have this culture where at least, you know, they are their employees really are happy to come to work. I know that is also part, greatly part uh, because of the managers. But in terms of the organizations um, that you've seen that are working well or, you know, where most of the time the companies, the employees really love to work, are there some characteristics of those uh, companies that actually um, do get it right at the moment? Have you seen some kind of patterns of what will be the underlying factors in there? I think it's very nuanced. And I can only answer this question based on the organizations that I've worked in, because I believe that the truth will vary depending on the person that's talking and depending on where they are and the will of privilege when they show up into a workspace. Mm. 
I I can't say that any of my previous companies that I've been at have personally done this well. Mm. Um, it doesn't mean that, that they haven't done some things right. I can't just say that it has been done well based on my personal experiences. I think the characteristics of an organization that is building a strong culture that is becoming more agile, that is adapting to its people, is one that offers inclusive benefits, one that offers um, flexibility and autonomy that invests in its people. It's people-centric. It has processes that are equitable and that are applied consistently across the board to all groups of people that gives you the space to grow and to maneuver and to find a space where in the organization you feel like you can show up and be yourself and do good work. Mm -hmm. And that experience is largely impacted by the manager that someone has. It's also impacted by the systems that the companies have in them. And so again, the answer will vary depending on the person that you're talking to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so in this, uh, you know, just to, to end up this uh, this part of uh, our conversation, what would you say will be some of your top advice for perhaps some leaders who are still looking to do something better in their organization and start this journey where people will love, you know, to come to work. And, um, you know, do you have any any advice, any tips uh, for those organizations who are still trying to find a way of doing it? Yeah, I think a first step for, for managers and organizations that are wanting to invest in their managers to navigate or gravitate towards building a more inclusive workplace and having a better culture is to invest in education and training and support and resources around what does it mean to be an inclusive leader? Mm. I think that's a good start. It's how to interact with people, how to understand people, how to understand yourself while you're interacting with people and how to cultivate a space that gives people the option to show up in a way that's comfortable for them. Mm, I love that. I love that. Exactly. Sounds like a, a very, very good place to start. It definitely, you know, get your managers to become uh, more, um, um, you know, uh, fluent in becoming inclusive leaders and uh, empowering their team. Wonderful. Now let's look at the last part of our conversation, which is about the 3M. Uh, you know, this uh, podcast is Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life podcast, where actually we always, I'll always love to end the conversation with those three, a meaning, money, and movement. So the meaning side is where do you get your inspiration from and what gives you meaning? Yeah, I think my inspiration comes from seeing an opportunity to serve an, a, a need that has gone unmet for quite some time. It comes from the people's experiences that I know personally and them sharing that information with me. Um, What gives my life meaning, again, my purpose here is to be a connector. I am here to be a connector and a conduit that provides a resource to someone else, a benefit to someone else. I'm always going into a conversation Or I'm always interacting with someone, not as in what can they do for me, but how can I add value to that person's life? And with no expectation of Mm -hmm. anything else in return, that is how I approach any relationship with anyone and with any organization is how can I add value to them? That's awesome. That's really, really awesome and uh, very inspiring as well. <laughs> so uh, now the money side, I'm very generous and I give you one billion pounds. So that means $1.3 billion. What would you do with that? And how would you spend your days? Oh, oh my goodness. So <laughs> that's a very easy question. I, I think about winning the lottery and the, the lottery. <laughs> uh, I would spend that money investing back into underserved, historically excluded, underestimated, uh, underprivileged communities. That is what I would do. It would be creating organizations that give people the skills and what they need to be successful. It's investing in other entrepreneurs to rebuild in their communities to start to close wealth gaps. It would be investing in other people and going to the Bahamas. So. <laughs> Okay, that's wonderful. That really shows a 
big alignment. It's not just going to just live underneath a coconut uh, tree and then stay there for the rest of your life. <laughs> That's good. So, and how do you want to be remembered for? I want to be remembered as the person that helped to open a door that changed their life the moment they stepped through it. That is how I want to leave this earth. Oh, let uh, people remember you as someone who opens the door. That is so, so, so wonderful. So how now people can reach you and learn more about you and your work? Yeah, I am not hard to find. You can find me on LinkedIn at Kristen Bale. Um, you can also connect with me through my websites, which is culturesite.com or reviewtaylor.com. I also have a Facebook that I am on every now and then. I have an Instagram that I'm on once a month. But the main way to reach out to me <laughs> is through LinkedIn. I wonderful wonderful so thank you so much christine the time has just gone like this thank you so much for joining me today in the meaningful work meaningful life podcast and really sharing this brilliant brilliant valuable insight really appreciate you appreciate you and it was such such a pleasure thank you very much for your time yeah absolutely if i can uh, do anything else for you if i can be a connector for you in any way to anybody in my network do not hesitate to reach out Oh, that is so, so nice. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Well, that is it for today. And before we go, don't forget to subscribe to the Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life podcast if you love what you've heard. The show notes of the episode are on my website, francinebelay.com slash podcast. Once you are there, you can also take the free personal branding for impact test. It's only two minutes and you will discover the score in seven key areas to improve your career or business success through personal branding. It's quick and it's free. I will see you next week for another episode of season nine. Until then, dream, act, and make an impact. Lots of love.